1: I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome to the channel, and thanks very much for joining us. I just spoke with Gene Anderson about his new book, Food and Environment in Early and Medieval China. This came out with the University of Pennsylvania Press in 2014, and it's very much a book that is accessible to both communities of readers and listeners who know a whole lot about Chinese history and communities of listeners and readers who don't know anything about China. Um, and that's one of the wonderful things about the book. So it's written in a way that really brings together Jean's um, background in anthropology, um, a lot of what he knows about food science and ecology and the environment, with the documentary and material record of Chinese history, to inform a way of thinking about a kind of diachronic, trans-historical story about food environment, um, conservation, sus- ideas about sustainability, environmental management, And much, much more. So the book takes us from prehistoric origins um, across Eurasia, so pretty early stuff, all the way to the Ming Dynasty and then a little bit beyond in terms of the kind of wrap up of the book. And in doing so, It introduces us to lots of really fascinating ways of reading um, Chinese texts, uh, archaeological finds, materials from tombs, and proclamations, in one case uh, written on a wall, for evidence that speaks to and that helps us construct and think about a larger history of attitudes toward the environment, to ecology, and to food in China um, that really, I think, has consequences for how we think about um, the future. So it's a really interesting... Book. It was really a pleasure to talk with Gene about it. He knows so much about this stuff, um, and is just it, the book is full of details and material and stories that we only barely scratch the surface of. So, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy, and I certainly did. I'm here today to talk with Gene Anderson about his new book, Food and Environment in Early and Medieval China. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Gene, and thanks very much for being with me today.
0: Well, thank you very much for having me.
1: So, Jean, could you start us off by saying a little bit about what brought you to the field, and specifically, how did you come to work on China?
0: Well, my parents were very interested in China. They were historians of Europe, and uh, I just sort of got interested in China, uh, starting with their interest, and it just sort of grew. All my life, I've been interested in China, and sort of discovering Arthur Whaley's Translations of Poetry and Philosophy, when I was in high school, really
1: Mm
0: -hmm. nailed me down.
1: So the book that we're talking about today focuses specifically on the history of food and the environment in China up to the Ming Dynasty. And it takes us all the way from prehistoric origins across Eurasia through to the Ming and then sort of reaches um, a little bit further into the future from there. So, how did you come to this topic? Can you talk a little bit about how this fits within your broader research trajectory, and how you came to decide to create a book-length object about this topic?
0: Well, Victor Mayer sort of got me on—I uh, don't know how we got into it—but I was communicating him off and on about China and Central Asia connections, and he said I have to write up all the stuff on food that I could find on that, and. So I did most, and uh, sort of started by writing a book about all of Chinese history. But I was weaker on Ming and Qing, and so we decided that since the book was excessively long already, I should save that for another venue. So what happened is that I uh, took that part out, uh, brushed up on Ming and Qing, and and doing a separate chapter for another book on that. So yes, you will even find out about Ming and Qing eventually. <laughs>
1: Well, there's actually some really fascinating Ming stuff in here, um, and it, it takes this up um, and definitely talks about that. And I think one of the things that's really, really interesting, and we'll get to this, I'm sure, over the course of our conversation, is that the book really kind of revises how I think a lot of historians think about the Ming in terms of innovation and sort of an integration into an early modern system, um, and turns that on its head a little bit in a really provocative way. So we'll we'll get to that, I think, in it uh, by the end. Um, so as we move into the book itself and we move into the introduction, what I'm going to do is kind of say a little bit to, um, situate us there and to take us through, and then I'll ask you to talk about some of the really important things I think that you're doing in these chapters. So one of the things that I want to mention for listeners is that in the introduction, you're not just laying the foundation for the book, but also pointing us to um, a really interesting and I think really fascinating resource that can be read in conjunction with the book that's outside the book and this is the website crazycoyote.com Crazy <laughs> kind of, right? That you mentioned yeah. in the book and I think it's it's totally fabulous. There's tons of material um, on there that speaks to and kind of fleshes out and is in conversation with some of the material on the book. How long have you been maintaining that website?
0: Uh, I guess about 10, 12 13 years.
1: Yeah. Hmm. Hey, so I just wanted to mark that for listeners because I think increasingly um, more and more academics are really embracing the opportunity, right, to use web media and to sort of um, and new media to speak to um, a larger audience and to sort of really um, experiment with the possibilities of academic work. And I think this is really a model um, of what can happen when you do that. So, but coming back to the book itself, I, um, One of the things that you introduced in the introduction is really crucial um, for the conceptual frame of the book, and this is the idea of a food system. Mm -hmm. So for listeners who may not be familiar with the idea of a food system and sort of how you're um, pulling that out of the larger model of a world system, can you talk a little bit about that notion and kind of introduce um, whatever we need to understand? excuse me, understand about a world system to understand um, the work that you're doing with it in the book?
0: Well, this is system in a different sense. A food system is a standard anthropological term for looking at production of food, uh, distribution, marketing of food, and consumption of food as one system. Mm
1: -hmm. Okay, great. And is there um, anything in particular about the world system model that you... Um, you invoke early on in conversation with the idea of a world system that particularly speaks to you as a way to understand China in particular in terms of its food and environment?
0: Uh, well, the world system idea, basically, you know, you're looking at connections between countries or polities or uh, cultures and how they interact with each other and how you know the, the properties of the system change. Uh, you know the idea of a core versus a semi periphery versus a periphery, for instance, and China has always been the core of East Asia and it was pretty much a separate world system through most of the period i 'm talking about and China got pretty much integrated gradually into the entire Eurasian world system, you know starting pretty much in the Tang dynasty or, or even earlier. And, and by the time that this book finishes, it's pretty thoroughly incorporated into the world system. Great.
1: Now, as we move into the chapters, you take us from prehistory all the way to the Ming and then beyond. So let's start in prehistory. Um, one of the things you mentioned that I think is conceptually really interesting in this first chapter, prehistoric origins across Eurasia, is you point us to the importance of the relationship between the sort of physical biological tasting ability and food culture so can you talk a little bit about that this because it's, I think it's a um, it's one of many cases in the book where you're bringing together um, insights from kind of uh, from the sciences and um, insights from Chinese history to make them speak to each other
0: yeah the uh, perspective I come from in food studies is the uh, what we call the biocultural perspective in anthropology. You look at biology and culture as uh, things that you have to take into account as a single system. And you have to know about both the biology and the cultural stuff. And you can't really separate them. And taste, I'm not sure quite what you're referring to, but uh, the fact that people can taste sweet, sour, salt, bitter, and umami is obviously relevant. I mean, if people want to have Particularly
1: good tasting food. Yeah, that's actually what I'm referring to. I think there's a, um, there are a few pages in chapter one where you talk precisely about that, right? The ability to taste, um, umami and other kinds of, um, of tastes. And, um, the, that chapter, chapter one, I think really interestingly integrates that insight within a larger frame of what it is to understand food culture historically. Uh So that's what I'm pointing to. So as we move from prehistory into early agriculture, and we're going to do this at a rapid clip, right, Um, is uh, we move into a discussion of early farming in China, the domestication and spread of rice agriculture. You talk about the development of fermented beverages in early China. There's a lot of stuff going on here. So we could easily talk about this for an hour, right? And we don't, (laughs) we won't do that. But one of the, um, I think, really important things that happens in the second chapter of the book on China's early agriculture, is from the very beginning now here, or almost the very beginning of the book, you are bringing Central Asia into the story, right? Um, making the point here that um, it's really, it's, we can't understand what's happening, even in these early stages, without talking simultaneously about China and Central Asia. So can you talk a little bit about that for you? Why is it um, even in these very early stages of Chinese history, why is it so important for us to keep uh, a perspective on this that integrates um, Central Asia into how we think about China
0: well, it's been a, trans- a travel corridor forever and you've had you know, as long as there have been people in Asia and so from the beginning you have a lot of stuff moving across Central Asia and especially in regard to agriculture you know wheat and Barley spread from the Near East and sheep, you know, wheat and barley spread from the Near East, starting from about, you know, 11,000 years ago and, and reaching China about 4,000 years ago, more, maybe more like 5,000, but we're not sure. And, uh, sheep and goats, uh, got to China about that same time. The Chinese probably independently domesticated sheep, but the goats are certainly intrusive. Um, And meanwhile, Millet, you know, uh, the uh, broomcorn Millet or Panicum Millet is going the other way and and moves from China and eastern Central Asia to Europe by way back, about 4,000, 5,000 B.C. And after that, you've just got a very open transportation corridor with ideas and foods crossing all the time. And, And with food, at least you know exactly where it's coming from in most cases, because you can pinpoint where a given food was domesticated. And, of course, Central Asia itself was a domestication site for a number of things, including apples. They've recently genetically pinpointed the domestic apple to the area around Almaty and Kazakhstan. Mm -hmm.
1: Great. So we get, even from this early part of the story, we have a perspective that integrates um, a kind of, Uh, integrates attention to circulation exchange and flow into how we understand China. Now, as you bring us into Chapter 3, we move into a chapter on the origins of Chinese civilization. And this chapter is, um, among other things, kind of making the point, at least from my perspective, that understanding the origins of Chinese civilization is critical to how we understand notions of food and the environment here and the ways that they develop um, and will develop
0: subsequently.
1: So in this period, and especially in the Warring States, as you put it here, China's food system developed. um, China's food system developed. And from these earliest times, um, as you point out here, China was a diverse set of traditions. Chinese civ was a diverse set of practices and traditions. You talk about the division early on here between North and South as well. Now, because this division between North and South is going to wind up being really, really important in terms of the way the rest of the history um, develops over the course of the book. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, Sort of in this moment, um, you talk about the division between a kind of a wheat and millet north and a rice-based south. Why is that important early on? And, And can you kind of speak to that in the larger context of this early part of the story?
0: It's important because, uh, you know, North China is dry and has cold winters, and South China is wet and warm, and North China domesticated millets very early, and then much later got wheat and barley, and those, all of those things do fine in cold, dry conditions. Uh, South China, you know, rice was domesticated in the Yangtze Valley at about the same time, or maybe a little later, the millet was domesticated somewhere in the Yellow River Drainage. And then you've got this kind of separate dry agriculture with millet and wheat versus wet rice agriculture, and this has remained separate, you know, ever since. Uh, Now there's more rice in the north, but uh, through most of history these have been two systems that blended into each other, and of course the Yonza Valley wound up growing, growing wheat in the winter and rice in the summer through most of history. But still, these are separate agricultural systems with, with quite separate ecologies and quite separate practices and foods involved and so forth. Mm-hmm.
1: And do you, would you say that there are important historical ramifications of those separate ecological systems? I mean, do you think there... Can we proceed from there to understand a larger um, division, historical division, between North and South? Or, or how, did, how would you um, think about that?
0: Well, there's a lot of uh, results of this. You know, we... And millet agriculture in the dry north tends to produce a fair amount of soil erosion. It is not necessarily very productive in terms of pounds per acre. Uh, it's, a fairly, it's a system which is fairly vulnerable to famines. Uh, it involves somewhat less control over the environment. The extreme form of the wet rice agriculture system that you see in, in southeast China involves total control of the entire environment from mountaintops to out into the ocean uh, with diking and draining and selective deforestation and selective planting, everything, everywhere. And you've got an entirely controlled environment, which causes a tremendous amount more productivity <laughs> per acre and more stability to the system. And um, one of the kind of odd things about this is that dry northern areas tend to conquer wet rice-growing southern areas, not only in China but in India and in Europe and pretty much everywhere throughout history. And part of that is that I think probably is because these northern – I'm not going to make a huge point of this because I'm not sure if it's true, but one possible reason is that the north is more subject to fluctuations, uh, Mm In a very good year, they can conquer outward quite easily. In a very bad year, they need to do something uh, so they tend to be more dynamic and and more prone to move outward and conquer. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not going to make too strong a point of that. It needs much more thought. Sure. You can see a number of historic consequences that could follow from these distinctions.
1: So early in this chapter, you also talk about um, some of the early texts from which we can garner...
0: Um, evidence
1: or gather evidence about um, early food and environmental
0: yeah.
1: um, notions. So you bring us into the Jolie, um, for example, and in looking at these texts, um, you talk about the complex etiquette of eating and also make a point that's going to be um, something that we see again later, um, which is a point about feasting and Puritanism. So food consumption, right, was um, food consumption in these texts, as you describe it, was a kind of took on a pattern of feasting. And you note that Puritanism was firmly equated with disrespect. Now, because this idea of Puritanism um, as it pertains to food is also something that we'll see later on, can you speak a bit about that? What do you mean here by Puritanism and in what way um, is this a, a form of disrespect? And why do we need to understand this to understand early food culture in this part of the book?
0: Well, um, starting out with Puritanism, it's a Western you know, European concept of really goes much wider than the Puritans or the Puritans in the U.S. But part of Western thinking, and very strongly part of Christian thinking from the beginning, is that delights of the flesh are low and disgusting and unclaimed, and you really ought to be pure and, and not enjoy that stuff. And I got a pretty good dose of that from my Calvinist father, but fortunately my mother was much more Tolerant. Uh, and China, this idea was very strongly enunciated by uh, the Moists, uh, Modi and, and that school of philosophy. And it was very sharply shot down by the Confucians and, and others who said that you know, if, if you don't feed your elders and ancestors and by extension the gods decently, they're going to get pretty annoyed and they're not going to like you. And so you have a very different idea of gods and spirits, but also a very different idea of how you show respect to the living. And this is, it was debated quite explicitly between the Moists and the Confucians in the warring, in the later Warring States period. And Puritanism was kind of definitively refuted. Whereas in the Western world, it got established, especially in the two or three centuries after Jesus and uh, pretty much established as a very similar thread in Western history still is.
1: So as we move, thank you. Um, So as we move to Chapter 4, we move into a chapter that really looks in a very focused way at at ideas of sustainability. So this is a chapter on the development of China's sustainability during Zhou and Han. Now, you open up um, the chapter by giving us um, a... Kind of a section of what you call the most dramatic single document in China's environmental history, right? Mencius's parable yeah. of the Ox Mountain. And so I'll just yeah. mark that um, for our listeners. It's on page 91. Um, can you maybe describe this a little bit? So, what's so important about this parable of Ox Mountain for Mencius? And you talk specifically about this in terms of uh, deforestation and ideas of deforestation. So can you introduce that a little bit for listeners?
0: Well, it's been popular throughout Chinese history, you know, in China. And it's been very popular in the Western world since Manchus was translated. Um, First, he's got an incredibly good sense of ecology. The fact that deforestation reduces rainfall, reduces moisture, Uh, the fact that the little shoots will grow up again, but then people come and mess over the shoots too and graze animals and so on. And so Ox Mountain, which started out forested, uh, degraded to brushland and then degraded to just being bare and naked. And then he you know parallels that with human psychology. People start out able to be wonderful and good, grow social. And if they are not that way, it's because somebody has messed them over. And this is both excellent ecology and excellent psychology. I mean, this man is 2,500 years ahead of his time. Uh, And it certainly indicates a, a consciousness of the environment and the fact that everybody read Mencius, or if they didn't read him, they still knew about him. I worked with illiterate fishermen in Hong Kong in the 1960s, and I got called by a couple of readers of my... Stuff, or you know, how can these bot guys know about Confucius and Mencius if they're literate? And you know, these things are quoted by everybody all the time, just like as the Bible used to be when I was a kid in the Midwest in the US. Um, You didn't have to be literate to know all these quotes, the the famous quotes from Confucius and Mencius. And this was pretty well known. Mm -hmm.
1: So, thank you. So, the chapter proceeds from here. Um, to look more broadly at the emergence of principles of environmental management that have largely persisted, as you say here, over centuries. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that? What are some of these early principles of environmental management that we see, you know, either in Mencius? You also talk about the Guanza, the Huaynanza, the Liji. Um, can you introduce some of the, these early principles, um, that have persisted for listeners?
0: This is what's really cool, and I think what makes the book worth doing is that there are now these really good new translations of Guanza and Kwanzaa uh, and so on, good thorough complete translations with scholarly apparatus, and it allows me to kind of figure out what's going on environmentally here. There's a lot of forest management, uh, very self-conscious forest management. There's the, this really amazing telltale thing, inscription that was found on a bronze vessel that you know, the king has given me, you know, tremendous privileges, so much that I can even afford to cast this bronze vessel, you know, so that I can oversee the forests and preserve them for, uh, so we can have timber for building the halls, uh, and this kind of thing. Uh, there's a lot of amazing, revealed, re- amazingly revealing documents that have been coming out lately. Charles Sand translated the Imperial Edicts on King of Han Dynasty, that has all kinds of ecological good advice in it, you know, about taking animals in the spring when they're breeding and things like that. Mm-hmm. And the uh, is full of this stuff, I mean, telling people not to take animals in the breeding season, telling them not to uh, cut down trees too much, you know, be selective about what they cut, uh, all kinds of, you know, ecologically very sound advice, and there's plenty of evidence that that got around and the people followed it. And that's pretty new stuff.
1: This is this is new things. Right. So, you, um, and in addition to talking about sort of soil uh, discussions of soil types and water yeah. management and conservation calendars, you also talk about um toward the end of the chapter the importance of an archaeological find, right? In the in a ruined city called Xuanzhen, or near uh, Dunhuang in Gansu, I think. And this is a ruined wall that was painted with a government proclamation. So right. it was it's, soon- This is. The- yeah, so that's
0: that's the translation by Charles Santley. Right. So what's interesting is that you know this very very good ecological advice was way out there, yeah. on the equivalent of the middle of the Mojave Desert.
1: Right, and it's um, so the chapter I think really interestingly takes us through some of the advice: right? "Don't cut down trees, don't gather eggs, etc." So, it's a really really fascinating. Some yeah. kind of document, and that's on page. Um, right, it starts on page 132, roughly for our listeners. So this attentiveness to the importance of archaeological finds um, really continues through the next chapter.
0: Yeah.
1: Chapter five looks at dynastic consolidation under Han, and you bring us into um, the sort of the history of Han foodways. As you put it here, Chinese food suddenly came out of the shadows in the han dynasty and you talk about some of the as you call it world-class inventions right irrigation works soil and water conservation seed saving methods etc that were developed at this um in this period in this space that went on to profoundly shape as you describe here the world economy now you talk about the importance here of tomb finds. so this is what um kind of i'm using to link. From this um fine, archaeological find in Gansu that we've talked about in the previous chapter. And these tomb finds, including um finds and especially finds at Ma Dwe, um, have kind of revolutionized the study of Han food. So can you talk a little bit about that? Sort of what's um what is some of the important revolutionary insight that we've gotten from tomb finds um in terms of how we understand food in the Han?
0: Um a number of texts that flesh out what we know about Han Dynasty thought, uh, a number of foods and, and herbs have been found in these tombs. And uh, a lot of the herbal medicines have labels, and so we know that the words were pretty much the same then as now. Um, I really thought what was more interesting than the Han Dynasty is, is the incredible kind of editing up and uh, finalizing and so on with the Huananza and the Kwanzaa and so forth, a lot of what seemed to have happened at the court of Yuan. Uh, Mm -hmm. And my sense is that a lot of that fascinating ecological lore is is probably early Han dynasty. Uh, They claim, of course, that it goes clear back to Guanza around 500 B.C. and so forth. But uh, I think... the other, the other thing about the reason that Han Dynasty food comes out of the shadows though, is just that we have the texts, we have you know medicinal books and agricultural manuals and things. Like that. So we have a lot more data. Also, the Han Dynasty was very fond of putting pottery models of everything in tombs, and so we have pottery models of stoves with locks on them, uh, which is the earliest locks that anybody knows of in China, and other kind of useful data.
1: Thank you. Um, so as we move from here into the next chapter, you take us into medieval China. So chapter six looks at, as you call it, foods from the West in medieval China. And it takes us through um, a series of periods that can be kind of loosely um, categorized under the umbrella of medieval China to walk us through some of the really interesting and important developments or um, characterizations of these periods in terms of the larger argument of the book. So, in the Three Kingdoms and Northern and Southern Dynasties, for example, uh, for listeners who are really um, deeply interested in uh, stir frying, right, and stir frying recipes, um, you talk about a really important text, the *Qi Min Yao Shu*, which includes um, really important discussions of lots of agricultural technologies that are really important um, for how we understand. This history, and it also includes a recipe, and I have to mention this a recipe for duck that may be the very first recipe that involves stir frying. So yeah. that's pretty cool. cool. Yep. You also um, bring us into the importance of the Tang Dynasty here. Um, and this is going to be um, very, very important, um, at least as I see it, for the kind of work that the book is doing in this part of the text. Now, in the Tang, environmental degradation, or degradation began to attract attention as you put it here. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that? What's happening in the Tang in terms of how environmental degradation specifically um, is being understood? Because that seems to be a really, really important moment in the development of a larger ecological and environmental sensibility in the the
0: course of the book. I expect it was actually much, it was obviously well recognized before that, but what happens in Tang is that you start getting poets and uh, writers in general, Talking about it and mentioning the fact that, it, uh, I mean, poems being written about excessive deforestation and things of that. Mm-hmm. Something that was clearly of interest to urban intellectuals who were writing fine poetry. Mm-hmm. Not the sort of people you would normally expect to be so concerned with ecology.
1: So in the Tang also, as you mentioned in the chapter, the Silk Road and tra- travel and transit across the Silk Road or Silk Roots also became extraordinarily influential. What are some of the most important ways that that shaped what was happening in terms of how we understand food and the environment in this Tang period?
0: Well, that really is getting interesting. There again is some recent work on just how much more important Central Asia was in those periods than we thought it was. partly because all these Central Asian geniuses and polymaths like al biruni and Avicenna were kind of lumped as vaguely Muslim and everybody sort of thought, oh, they were in Baghdad or somewhere. Uh, it turns out that Central Asia was the intellectual center of the world in the uh, uh, period roughly from 600 or 700 to about 1100. And uh, a lot of those ideas got to China. And a thing which is currently... Fascinating me, and I don't know quite what to do about it, is the number of, of Chinese ideas that seem to have gotten to the West and Western ideas that certainly got to China in that period or soon after. And we don't really know very much about how they did it. And certainly the Chinese were aware of medical developments in Central Asia. I mean, we have this amazing 14th century medical encyclopedia of Western medicine, which basically means Central Asian medicine. Uh, I'm just reading a book, A History of Balance, by Joel Kay. He's talking about ideas of balance that arose in Europe in the 1200s, 1300s. They're all Chinese, and whether they got them from the Chinese or independently developed them, or both China and the West developed them from ancient Greek thought, I have no idea. I mean, mm-hmm. How come there's suddenly in, in, in Europe uh, he traces to ancient Greek? So that's a good thought. I mean, that's clearly a start. But ancient Greek thought was certainly getting to China by uh, uh, the Tang Dynasty because we have Sun Sun Miao, uh drawing on Western medicine. And in this 14th century text that Paul Bewell and I are messing with, Galen is explicitly mentioned quite often.
1: Yeah, let's actually move to that, because that's um, kind of a high point of, or certainly one of the focal points of the next chapter, chapter 7, that looks at Mongols and the Yuan dynasty. So um, this is a chapter that looks, uh, among other things, at the importance of the Mongol Empire for understanding the movement and circulation of food and environment-related materials and practices um, in this period. And among um, the really fascinating uh, things that you're bringing us into here is this text, the um, Huihui Fang? But I think is the text that you were referring to, this 14th century text. You talk a lot about this as it informs our understanding, among other things, of globalization and kind of flows of knowledge in the medieval world and um, make the point very, very strongly here in, in very strong terms that there's a moral that comes from studying this text, right? That we need to rethink the idea of the incommensurability of medical traditions, right? yeah. it's not. so can you maybe talk about this larger um, this larger point you're making? Then we can get into some of the details of the text.
0: Well, there's uh, this flow of knowledge through Central Asia and outward from Central Asia, mm-hmm. and uh, clearly the Chinese never felt that there was any great incommensurability between Western medicine and Chinese medicine because they're incorporating Western medicine right through. Uh, Tibetans also. There was a, you know, the chief medical advisor at the court of of Tibet in the eighth century called himself Galen. He was a Westerner, uh, obviously taking the suit, but uh, you know, so Tibet had Galenic medicine of a very self conscious sort by the eighth century. Uh, I wish we had more smoking guns like that for China, but we certainly have plenty of evidence that the Chinese were borrowing. Western ideas, and of course, as Bertrand Laufer showed way back in 1918, they borrowed Western medicines like crazy, and uh, all through the uh, pre ton and on down into Iran. So, uh, yeah, no, uh, they did not have this problem with incommensurability.
1: So one of the points that you're making um, in this chapter, that's associated with that, is that you suggest that uh, one way we might move away from this discourse that understands um, early medical traditions or these sort of medieval medical traditions as incommensurable is by moving away from a focus on theory and medical yes. theory yeah. and toward a focus on practice. Um, as, we, you know, think about the, um, as we think about the as we think about the history of medicine and medical histories. And so along those lines, you kind of bring us into some really fascinating, I think, details about this text that speaks to that, um, and that helps us uh, think about that. So one of the ways um, that I think your analysis of the text does this is by bringing us into the world of the medicinals, right, the objects, the, um, the kinds of medicines, the, the drugs that are discussed in the text. So let's talk about that a little bit. Um, what kinds of medicinals are most important um, in the hui uh, hui fang and what's important for us to understand about the, the substances, the medicinals that are used here um, and how they're used in order for us to understand um, the, you know, the kind of arguments that you're making with this text?
0: Well, um, I wish we knew much more about the actual biomedical value of these medicines, but uh, black pepper, kind of the most often often mentioned medicine a lot. We know that it's, stimu- it's strongly stimulating to blood flow, digestive juices, all that kind of stuff. And uh, a lot of the other medicines are, are clearly effective in a fairly minor way. Uh, and many of them in a kind of spicy stimulant sort of way. Uh, so what interests me in you know, the, the wider context. of so this is the when anthropologists look at Chinese medicine, we always seem to wind up saying that Chinese medical practice really is about fixing people, or at least treating the symptoms, or at least doing something. And you've got the strong sense, the strong emphasis on practice, and Jimmy Farquhar's work, and Elizabeth Sheeve's work, and other anthropologists who've looked at Chinese medicine. Uh, the tendency among historians has been to look at theory in a very disembodied way, as if People really were talking grand theory and, and not trying to treat the patient. And I think there's probably something to that, too, because I, I think there were a lot of Chinese medicinal writers who really were very concerned with commenting on ancient texts and coming off ancient theories. So it's it's two different ways to look at the Chinese medical tradition, and they're both valid and interesting. But uh, you always have to think about what some Chinese doctor was actually doing when he's practicing and, and prescribing these drugs and hoping that some of them work.
1: So one of the ways um, that I think you sort of bring out the importance of that is by helping us understand the um, not just the materials in the Hui Hui Feng in terms of um, their potential... Uh, reconciliation with biomedical research, but also help you help us understand um, your perspective on the illnesses that I mentioned in the Quixiliao Feng. Yeah. Now, as you um, mentioned here, most of the illness terms so far are kind of incomprehensible, but you do take us into some really interesting case studies. Um, insofar as the text seems to be dealing with stroke and oh. um, insanity or madness. So could you speak a little bit to that? Um, What's important here about the way the text is dealing with either um, stroke or madness in terms of understanding um, the larger significance of it?
0: Uh, The stroke thing is particularly interesting because the symptoms of stroke are unmistakable. You've got, uh, well, certain kinds of stroke. Basically, you've got a stroke that's a cerebral you know, accident in the right brain, it's going to paralyze the left side of the body, or partly paralyze it, and then vice versa. And nobody can miss that, and it's absolutely characteristic. And the description makes it absolutely unquestionable that that's what happened. And you get the same treatment in the Yao Fang and in medieval Europe at the same time, and it just blew my mind. <laughs> uh, same description of the symptoms of the same uh, medicines used to treat insofar as they had all those medicines. and Lavender never seems to have gotten China, And they're treating stroke with that in, in Europe and it works up to a point. Uh, but basically it's the same a description of the same condition and the same treatment used all across it, uh, Eurasia at the time. Mm-hmm. And even to somebody who had a long known that there were links, that really blew my mind.
1: Now the other text um, in this chapter that you talk about is a text you've actually um, worked on and published on um, in a way that's uh, really great. And that's very, very useful to any of us who actually not just do research on you know, uh, the food cultures and medical cultures in this period, but also who teach in those periods. And this is a book that you published with Paul Buell, right, um, called A Soup for the Khan. And it's a, that book is a study of a text that also receives treatment in this chapter. And this is the Yinshan Zheng Yao.
0: Right.
1: Um, so this is a fascinating text that's assembled by Huzo Hui and presented to the emperor in 1330. So it's another 14th century text, um, and you discuss it here in terms of um, its uh, use as a guide to kind of court feasting, its reflection of what Mongols and other Central Asians were actually eating, and also um, kind of more broadly, you um, engage it in a way that makes a larger argument about the relationship between Near Eastern and Chinese food cultures and food codings, as you put it here, um, which, you know, you claim is actually so close that the flow of influence um, actually went both ways in contradistinction to how some historians understand this. So can you maybe talk a little bit about that? Um, What is important for us to understand about this text in order to understand and appreciate this larger point you're making about the flow of food coatings um, between Near Eastern um, and Chinese food cultures really being bi-directional.
0: Yeah. Uh, I wish I knew more about that. The, the, you have the, the selection of recipes, which range all the way from Near Eastern to Indian to Central Asian to Chinese. Mm-hmm. Uh, the coatings, I guess you're talking about the hot, cold, wet, dry coatings?
1: Yeah. Um, well, and you talk about this um, just for listeners on uh, uh, page 237. So... Um, it's yes, the the codes. Uh, I'm sort of looking at this. This is actually yes, um, hot, warm, balanced, cool, cold, cool, cold, but also ideas of sort of what to eat and what not to eat, etc., um, etc. Cetera, et cetera, so,
0: well, the idea that foods can be heating or cooling to the system, or perfectly balanced, is all over Eurasia, and it seems to have been independently invented by the Chinese and the ancient Greeks, uh, but by the Tang Dynasty, there was enough flow of knowledge across that people were quite aware of each other's codings, mm-hmm. and uh, so it, it got blurred into one system, uh, as it clearly is in the Yin Changyao. Yao. Uh, mm-hmm. And there's, so there's been a lot of influence; everybody's codings kind of traveled around. Uh, mm-hmm several anthropologists have done a good deal of work on this and it turns out that the idea that some foods are heating to the system and some are cooling to the system and some are balanced has been independently invented practically everywhere that anybody sat around thinking about food as medicine Um, several inventions clearly demonstrated Mm -hmm. but as the world system grows these things all fuse and you begin to get very similar Mm recordings there's been some really interesting work in Oaxaca where you've got traces of, the, of a pre-Columbian system surviving and merging into the uh, Galenic system that was introduced by Franciscan missionaries in the 1500s and 1600s. Uh, it's relevant to the Chinese case because you have know, some more things, with you know, Sun So Miao back in the Tang Dynasty kind of blending these systems and, and, and apparently being rather self-conscious about it.
1: Thank you. So as we move um, sort of toward the last parts of the book, we move um, very briefly into the Ming, yeah. and, and you suggest here that uh, the Ming dynasty, in fact, slowed a kind of interaction. Again, in the the larger context of these discussions about flows of people and ideas and practices that were um, perhaps more global, you're suggesting that that flow and that interaction actually slowed under the Ming, um, and that the interaction prior to that, otherwise, as I think you put it at the end of Chapter 7, should have kept China fully participant in the modernization of science after 1500. So I mention this because this is a pretty, um, right, a pretty strong claim about how to understand the Ming in terms of the larger history of China and global science coming from your study of food and the environment. So can you maybe speak a little bit to that. In terms of um, your point here about the larger history of science, how does understanding food and environment around the time of the Ming, you know, insofar as you're treating it here, help us understand this kind of slowing, as you put it, of interaction?
0: Well, I'm not sure if it's a sort of the received wisdom about Ming. You get initial, still quite a lot of absorption with Central Asia, but more and more defensiveness about it, and more and more Mongol raids uh, messing over Peking, and once they actually took the emperor, uh, and uh, so there's more and more sort of retreating into China, and then of course the huge decisive event that different that every historian seems to have a different claim on how big a deal it was was uh, Zheng He's voyages to Africa and so forth, and the sudden sharp stopping of those voyages and after in 1420 or so and after that the Ming just turned inward and, and just did not do much with exploring and traveling and so on. Even though Chinese were you know, increasingly trading with Southeast Asia and moving to Southeast Asia and establishing colonies there and so on. And you can imagine a universe in which China did the way Spain and Portugal did at the same time, you know, Go grab all that stuff. I mean, why didn't China conquer Borneo and Sumatra and Java and Malaysia? The way that Portuguese and Spanish at the same time were conquering everybody they could find. And uh, so there seems to be a slowing down. Also, the Ming, of course, was quite autocratic. Uh, A good deal of of real top-down control of what people did and said and thought.
1: Yeah, so it'll be actually, I think, really interesting, kind of, as a, speaking as a, a, Ming Qing person, right, in the, um, years to come to see how these transformations and how we are thinking about the Ming, um, can interact more with, uh, how we think about science and medicine and uh, environment and food in the Ming, right? I mean, I think more and more, um, historians of the Ming are starting to look at the Ming in terms of its global, um, integration, right, in terms of its uh, contextualization within a more global history framework. So it'll be really interesting to see how that kind of feeds into how we our understanding of science and medicine in this period also transformed.
0: Yeah, the thing that's interesting is, you know, things did not stop in Ming, and and lots lots of, of, you know, huge progress in science and food technology and and learning about food and so on. I mean, Galien, in late Ming wrote this wonderful food-as-medicine book where he's talking about all kinds of different waters and teas and things. And he's got a bunch of Central Asian recipes in there. He's got a recipe for Central uh, for uh, sesame halva, which is just like regular sesame halva you can get at a delicatessen now. And um, He calls it Shamshermah uh, Phan. God knows where he got that name. It's obviously a transliteration of some Central Asian word. He's got some other Central Asian recipes. He's, he's got a recipe for hal- another kind of hava, which he actually calls halva. Okay. halva. And uh, it's quite amazing. Uh, so there's still lots of knowledge of Central. And, of course, you have these amazing uh, botanical achievements climaxing in the uh, Bun Sao Gong Moon, which is really one of the most amazingly great works in the history of the world.
1: I agree. Yeah, of
0: course, <laughs> And your work on it is absolutely wonderful. Totally oh,
1: wonderful. thanks.
0: I just love it. Oh, thank you. And uh, anyway, the Bunsau uh, Gong Mu is exactly parallel with the work of, remember, donuts and people like that in Europe, with very, very similar herbals, similarly comprehensive, well, not as long and not as good, but similarly comprehensive. And so China and Europe are you know, exactly at the moving at exactly the same pace forward in, in botany at least. And then after the Bansal Gang move, China kind of shuts down. Of course the Ming fell apart and and there was a you know total war for decades. But uh, in Europe, of course, you got these much better herbals in the early 1600s, uh, John Parkinson and so forth. And China just sort of it added a lot more herbal remedies in Shan, but they really didn't do the kind of brilliant synthesis that Lee Schron did. Mm-hmm. I guess his work remains the standard even now.
1: <laughs> so as we, um, as we move from the Ming into the end of the book, we move to a really thoughtful overview of um, of these issues in Chapter 9. So this is Overview, Imperial China Managing Landscapes. So you talk here, uh, among other things, about the kinds of long-term consequences of China's environmental degradation, especially insofar as um, we understand this kind of increasing differentiation between the North and South, right, the steady rise of the South, the relative decline of the North. The South is being a kind of wet environment. The North is dry. And so we see a kind of um, extension of some of these early divergences that you point to earlier in the book. Now, what's surprising, as you um, point out here at the end of the book, and this is definitely not a story of um, sort of tragedy and failure. At the end of the book, we get a story um, that's fairly positive, right? Despite all of this degradation, What's surprising is not that the tigers and elephants, um, as you and you have a description of this in this chapter, what's which descri- which surprising is not that they retreated, but that any are still left after a million years of human presence. That despite the famines, the floods, the earthquakes, etc., China never collapsed ecologically, as you put it here. And you take us through some of the reasons why that might have been. So, can you maybe? Um, speak a little bit to that. For you, what do you think are some of the most important ways um, that, uh, or some of the most important reasons, rather, why there wasn't this kind of ecological collapse um, in your in your concept of uh, how to understand this history?
0: Well, um, a lot of it is wet rice agriculture, which is a very sustainable system and encourages sustainability, encourages good environment. A lot of it is this idea that trees really are important and valuable and worth saving. And so you have sacred groves all over China and some of them very large and extensive, uh, and sacred mountains where you couldn't cut the trees or at least you do two. And ideas of sustainable forestry were really pretty good and reasonable. Uh, and they just, you know, China did not have the Western idea that you have to destroy nature to do anything worthwhile in this world. Oh, which is an idea that really seems to come out of ancient Mesopotamia, where they really did have to flatten the land and put irrigation canals everywhere to, to get anything done. And I think from then on, you've got an idea in the Western world that destroying nature is intrinsically good. And China certainly did not have that idea. They had, if anything, the opposite idea. But on the other hand, if you go south to Thailand, you find, a, a again, just order of magnitude, better environmental management. Thailand and Indonesia and that whole area managed to create great civilizations and dense populations of quite rich people without really doing very much environmental damage at all. I mean, Thailand was 90% forested until the mid 20th century. Uh, very, very highly productive managed forests. They weren't uh, just wild, they weren't managed. Uh, the entire uh, environmental, ecological system was completely sustainable. It was just unbelievable. You unbelievable. Know, the extreme opposite of what we have in the West and today, at least. China's somewhere in between. It's kind of a fascinating case to me because it's not nearly as good at holding things together as, as Southeast Asia or the Maya that I study in, in uh, Mexico. But on the other hand, much better at ter- in terms of managing the environment than a good deal of The West has been through a good deal of history.
1: Now, in the course of the chapter, um, in the context of talking about kind of um, local ideas about science, about the environment, um, which is is very much part of the larger uh, sort of explanation of um, why, right? China has not um, collapsed ecologically, and it's been able to feed itself, as you put it, for over two thousand years, right? You talk about um, your moment of truth, as you put it here, in understanding traditional science. And this has to do, it's a fascinating story that has to do with um, your work with local peasants and um, the understanding of dragons. So because it's such a fascinating story, would you mind um, kind of talking a little bit about that for listeners?
0: Well, when I first got out into the field in Hong Kong in 1965, one of the first things that happened was they were building a new hospital. and they cut pretty deeply into a not very stable slope. and um, The local people were saying, you know, this is really a bad thing. It cuts the pulse of the dragon. And I said, oh, that's interesting. And like pulse of the dragon, yeah, there are dragons inside the hills. And the flow of energy of those dragons, uh, if you cut it, everything gets messed up. So I put this down as a very interesting belief. Next time there was a big rain, that whole slope failed and collapsed, and You know, wiped out a couple of houses. And people said, see, that's what happens when you cut the pulse of the dragon. And this great light goes up in my head. All right, they're talking about something real. They have seen cause and effect. The dragon is a rather strange black box inference of what goes on between the cause and the effect, but they're reasoning perfectly correctly from cause to effect. If you undercut a slope, it's going to fail the next time there's a big rain. And since then, I've been working to understand Chinese traditional science and belief from this point of view that they're clearly onto something. Our job is to find out what it is that they're on to and why they infer black box variables that we don't believe in. And you find this with earthquakes all over. Everybody in the world seems to have had a tradition at some time in their history that earthquakes are caused by a big animal under the earth shaking himself. And it turns out that the animal shakes himself at places which are now identified as earthquake faults. You know, uh, somebody mapped out in in Seattle the stories of uh, a giant, animal under the ground shaking himself and it turned out to be a perfect map for that big fault that runs right across
1: well, that's fascinating
0: yep I mean they felt the earth shaking all right they figured there's only one thing that can do that you know it's got to be a big animal okay.
1: so, so thank you so much like elsewhere in this chapter um, we won't have time to really talk about it in detail but um, you're also making some other really important points I just want to kind of mark those for listeners so you talk about among other things um, the uh, importance of understanding China's minority peoples as resource managers, right? And you sort of make a point here that China's minority peoples are often better resource managers than the Chinese themselves, um, which is uh, which is it, it's a very provocative point. Maybe before we close, did you want to say something about that?
0: Uh, generally, yeah. uh most of the minority people have more of a tradition of seeing the landscape as sacred and treating it with a lot of respect. And I got really fascinated with this word respect when I discovered that the I was working a little in Mongolia and found that Mon, that the kind of key concept of environmental management in Mongolia is respect. Shukesh or hundla in uh, Mongol. And... Uh, my Aka minority student from South China was meanwhile doing a thesis um, finding that respect is a kind of key Aka concept for managing the environment. They share in the Southeast Asian tradition of seeing the whole landscape was sacred and trees protected by spirits, hills protected by spirits, and so on and so They're very, very careful environmental managers, and uh, so now I've, I've been trying to find out how widespread spread this respect. Idea is, yes. and it's pretty wide, wide uh, pretty widespread. Um, and in general, most of China's minority groups come from traditions that are more respectful of the environment than the Han Chinese tradition. Get, and then conversely, the Han Chinese are more respectful of the environment. Westerners. Uh, this obviously is an area that I'm going to be researching more because we don't know about this. We really don't know much about. It.
1: Mm-hmm. That's right. Well, thank you so much, Jean. Um, I'll just kind of mention for listeners: there's some other really fascinating descriptions um, in late, in the, well, throughout the book. Um, uh, but in chapter nine, in particular, of uh, the kind of consequences of the communist regime, um, and their actions for the environment since 1950. There's a uh, discussion of the kind of need for balanced assessment of forests and forestry in China. A discussion of fish and fisheries in China. Um, and a a quite detailed description of um, kind of places historically where we can see consequences of and evidence of good and bad resource management. So there's a lot of really interesting things going on here. There's also two um, really interesting appendices, one on conservation among China's neighbors. So this gets at some of the things um, that you were talking about a little bit earlier. And there's also an introduction to Central Asian
0: food. Yeah.
1: So, Gene, there's a million, billion things in the book, right, that we didn't have a chance to talk about. Um, is there anything in particular that we didn't talk about but that you'd like to mention for listeners?
0: No, it's okay.
1: Okay. Um, and now that the book is out, and congratulations on the book, what's next for you? What are you working on now?
0: Um, one thing is that I, have, have, I also last year came out with a book, Caring for Place. Which is about traditional attitudes toward the environment, which has a chapter on China, which has a whole lot of other stuff on the environment that didn't make it into this book. Mm-hmm. Uh, in particular, poetry and, and art. Mm-hmm. I go into Chinese environment, you know, the environment in Chinese classical poetry and, and caring for place. You'd enjoy that. You'd like it. Uh, and otherwise, Paul Buell and I with Charles Perry, who's the world's expert on Near and food history, are, are now doing a hopefully short and simple book on Central Asian food history. Mm-hmm. And this is an area where I'm not an expert, you know, and Charles Carey are the experts, but I know enough about Central Asia. I've been around it enough to throw in a lot of biological and natural history kind of stuff that they didn't. So we're having a lot of fun playing with that.
1: Yep. Well, we'll look forward to seeing that too. Yep. Uh, thank you so much, Jean. It's really been a pleasure. Um, and thanks for making the time. Sure. You've been listening to new books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.